Justification is only for the ungodly. You have an unusual outline there. You're used to two pages, and um, really, new material takes up two lines, you know. Well, it was just difficult to, to really try to get it all down on paper. It was a dynamic sermon that kept on changing. So by the time we came to midnight last night, I said, I'm not going to write all that out. <laughs> you know, we'll preach it and see what happens. So like I said, you know, I just um, want the Lord to use this to his glory. You can use the back of the paper to, to write notes. And um, if you find things that are interesting to you, do have kind of a, a lengthy review here, but uh, the reason for the lengthy review is because really verses 5 through 11 are a unit. They go together, and they go together well. For time, we had to split them up. And so let me just read the first five, five verses of Romans 5 to you. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Do we really do that? <laughs> well, sometimes we grumble under tribulations, don't we? But we as Christians should glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Just reading my devotions this morning in John chapter 15 where Christ says he's going to send another advocate in his place. It's good for you that I go away, he said to his disciples. They didn't believe it. They, didn't. they, they were sorrowful in their heart. But Christ says, good for you to go away because of I go away, then I will send the advocate to you who will be in my place. And so it was a, it, it was a blessing to read that and see how it went along with what I was preaching today. Anyway, we have, because of justification, we have peace with God. The war is over. This isn't necessarily peace in the soul, but it's peace with God. But that will translate into peace with the soul. This is the fact that we are no longer fighting against God. We're no longer his enemy. We have access by faith. We can go any time into the Holy of Holies and have direct access with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit to take our imperfect prayers and make them perfect before the throne. And then we can rejoice in the midst of trials. And a Spurgeon quote there, I'll read it to you. Uh, I think I said it last week too. Suffering, rather than threatening or weakening our, weakening our hope as we might expect to be the case, will instead increase our certainty in that hope. Hope, like a muscle, will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortitude our hope and the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparently hopeless circumstances will bring even deeper conviction of the reality and certainty for that for which we hope. That was a mouthful there. But Spurgeon had a, just a way of saying things so well. And he knew what he was talking about. Spurgeon was a man who lived in the midst of many, many personal afflictions, a lot of health afflictions. 
Uh, he often had to be out of his pulpit uh, because uh, he had to go uh, to France uh, to try to get uh, better air, so to speak, than England. England's kind of a tough place to live, you know, the, the environment there. But he persevered. And then perseverance and character and hope. And um, Christian friend, you have a hope that one day will be experience and reality. And we just have to say, lost friend, you're without hope. And only the grace of God keeps you from being in hell this very second. Those are the realities of what we're talking about, how serious it is. The reason we can rejoice in these trials? Well, you know, Haldane actually says it well. And that's another lengthy quote. I'll read it to you because I know if I don't read it to you, you'll read it anyway. So we may as well read it together. So here's Haldane's quote. What fullness and variety of instruction and consolation are contained in the first five verses of this chapter. The work of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is exhibited, all severally acting as God alone can act in the various parts of man's salvation. The righteousness of God is imputed to the believer, who is therefore justified and pronounced by the judge of all the earth as righteous. As righteousness, he has peace with God and free access to him through Jesus Christ. And being thus introduced into the favor of God, he stands in the justified state, rejoicing in hope of future glory. Being justified, he is also sanctified and enabled to glory even in personal afflictions, he enjoys the indwelling of the Holy Ghost through whose divine influence the love of God is infused into his soul. Here then are the peace, the joy, the triumph of the Christian. Here are faith, hope, and love, the three regulators of the Christian life. Haldane wrote what is actually maybe the classic um, commentary on the book of Romans. Wrote it more than a century ago, but it, it just stands as uh, just a, a glorious testimony of the grace of God. You know, Romans, though, I, I've heard, and I believe it to be true, there are more commentaries on Romans than any other book of the Bible. And I believe that to be true, but um, Haldane usually says it very, very well himself, you know. And when I said the love of God is infused into his soul, when Haldane said that, he's using infused in the proper way. Remember we said that the, the righteousness of Christ is not infused into us. His righteousness is not infused into us, but sanctification is a process, and we'll be talking about that as we go. Sanctification is a process where we work with the Holy Spirit, and we work out our salvation, and we can do that because the divine influence of the love of God has been infused into our soul. So that doesn't touch justification, but every justified person is sanctified. It would be impossible to be justified without being sanctified. Uh, and there may be one exception to that, but you could look that up later in our confession, Hebrews 10, three, uh, not Hebrews 10, three, <laughs> our confession uh, 10 uh, and chapter 10 and uh, paragraph three. Okay, well, I was thinking about the confession just as I said that, which caused me to goof up a little bit. 
I'd like you to turn to our confession. It's in the back of your hymnal. One more reading. This is on page 676. Um, after I got through writing my sermon, I looked at that and said, you know what? Our confession says this very, very well. And we take our confession seriously. And so I'd like to read you what our confession says about justification. I'm not going to comment on it as such. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'll, I'll go back to the sermon the way that it was written. But um, I would just like to, to remind you how important our confession is and how it says things very well. And it's so very careful. In fact, it is so careful that it is even careful in the way it brings the doctrines to us. If you notice on 676, uh, effectual calling is before justification. Why would they do that? Because it is, <laughs> that's why. Effectual calling does come first before justification. It's the Spirit's work in effectual calling uh, as it says in paragraph one there, those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he's pleased his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death into which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And then it goes on. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. But it's important to realize that's what happens first. That's the first thing that happens. There needs to be uh, that effectual calling of the spirit and then justification will take place. And so let me read there. Paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them, or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Well, that's what we've been trying to say <laughs> in this particular uh, section of Romans. Let me go on. Number two, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it's not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. Third of all, Oh, I'm going to have to turn to it myself. My paper got cut off a little bit there, so sorry. Give me a moment to turn there. I gave myself a blown-up copy so I could read it to you better. Okay. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted, accepted in their stead, and both freely and not for anything in them. Just 
one moment here. Let me. Okay. Their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Okay. And then it says, two more, or three more chapters. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in time actually apply Christ to them. Now you go, yeah, of course. Well, not everybody says, yeah, of course. Some people believe in eternal justification. Elections before the foundation of the world. Justification for ourselves, although God absolutely is going to justify all elect persons. God comes to us in time and justifies us and gives us faith. Fifth of all, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from their state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and in that condition they have not usually the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. They never lost their justification, but they can lose those senses of, of what it means to them personally. We can do that. Sixth of all, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So, there's our confession of faith. We love to uphold our confession of faith. We don't read it often. I, I know that we don't as far as the preaching of the word, but we do often refer to it in our Bible teaching times and such like that. Okay, so with that being said and done, hopefully we got a really good idea of what justification is all about. And now we say that justification is only for the ungodly. Okay. Justification is only for the ungodly. And uh, let me start in verse number 6 of Romans chapter 5. For when we were still without strength, in due time, or at exactly the right time, we could say, uh, Christ died for the ungodly. And that uh, really is the same idea that's in Galatians 4, 4, and 5 too that he came at just exactly the right time. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And some of your Bibles will say we've now received the atonement. Well, okay, we've talked about that in the first hour, but reconciliation is a good translation here, I believe, of that. So. 
Uh, a couple more verses to read, too. We won't get this far. It'll be next week. But uh, chapter 12, Therefore, just as through one man's Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then there's this large uh, parentheses that Paul puts in here. But let's just skip through the parentheses. We'll deal with it next week and go to the main topic again, verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For if by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And so the difference is, uh, where, where are you? In what stead are you? Are you one of Adam's line? Or in the line of Christ, which he puts us by his grace. So we'll be talking about that and, and deal with it verse by verse. But let's go back to verse 6 now and deal verse by verse through here down through verse 11. Christ died while we were in a weakened condition. We were still without strength. We didn't have the ability to fix ourselves. We didn't have the ability to save ourselves in fact, in other places, the Bible talks about our, our being spiritually dead. And um, I, I've had people argue with me that, well, no, no, the Bible says we're spiritually dead, but it doesn't mean that you really are dead. Yeah, well, yeah, physically we're not dead. Spiritually we are. Well, no, 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 there's one thing you can do. I used to argue this, so I can, I can tell you <laughs> before I knew the doctrines of grace. I'd say, well, it's actually like this. You're lying in bed, you're, you're weak, you're probably going to die. But there's a medicine on the cabinet there, that, or on the desk beside you, that if you just reach out and take it, you'll live. So do that. Reach out, take that medicine, and you'll live, and you won't die. Well, dead men can't do that, right? You know, you could have the cure right there, but if you're dead, you're not going to reach out and take it. This is why we talk about God having to give us life first. So Jesus came in due time, literally at the right time, the time appointed before the foundation of the world, the time planned by the Father and Son in the act of salvation. Now, Christ died for his people when we were still without strength. We were weak. And, and the, the tense of the verb, or the tense of the word is, is that uh, we're in a continual state of weakness. And let me just illustrate it. All the exercise in the world is not going to cure you. It's a little bit of a ridiculous illustration, but hey, I made this one up myself, so you know, take it for what it's worth. You know. Somebody's probably said it before, who knows. But you know, suppose you wanted to set the, the world record for weightlifting. Okay, that's what you're going to do. And so you set out to do that. You're training, you're training, and you're training, you're working hard, you're lifting weights every day, you're doing all the things you're supposed to do, you're becoming stronger, but your goal is to lift 10,000 pounds. You're going to lift 10,000 pounds and set a record that nobody's even come close to ever reaching. So you train, and you strain, and you're as diligent as possible in every way. But you know what? You'll never lift 10,000 pounds. 
In fact, if you tried, you'd break your body. Your body could not stand under that kind of weight. Originally, I had 100,000 pounds, but I thought I'd lower it down a little bit for you guys. Yeah, 10,000 pounds, no one can. The human body's too weak. Well, Christ died for us to lift the burden of sin that we could never bear. And that's what the verse says. We weren't just without strength. We weren't just weak. We were, what does it say? Ungodly. We were ungodly. The righteous one died for the unrighteous and then gives us his righteousness. And there's a fourfold progression that works its way through the passage. And I'll just give it to you now and you'll see it as we get to it. He died to save the weak. He died to save the ungodly. He says, while we were still sinners, he died for us. And while we were his enemies. So we're just not neutral in this battle. We're actually enemies before he conquers us. Now verse 7 puts this into perspective. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Now, as a parent, I, I know that I would be willing to die for one of my children or my wife. I would. I, I know that. I believe that to be very, very true. Well, Okay, that's one thing, but then we're not talking about parents and children here. We're talking about a righteous person and a good person. Okay. A soldier goes into battle, well knowing that he might die. But a soldier doesn't go into battle so he can die. His goal isn't to die. Um, like it's been said by, by generals before, the purpose uh, of going to war isn't so that you die. The purpose to go to war is to make the other guy die, you know? And that's what General Patton said. It's very, very true. Okay, so you might die, you know, but you're not going out there to die. Secret servicemen are an interesting breed because they are willing to take a bullet for the president. They will take that bullet if they can and save the president's life. They're heroes, you know, and we have a lot of heroes. Our, our first responders, they're heroes, and we're glad for them. We're glad that we have heroic people like that. But now let's get a little closer to the idea. Hardly anyone would die for a righteous man or a good man. Someone that they just knew, you know, and they give their life that way. Some might, scarcely, but some might. But this is exactly what Jesus did. And he tells us that greater love hath no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The ultimate price. The ultimate price. Christ died for sinners. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Weak, ungodly, which by the way means godless. That's actually the, the word in the Greek. Ungodly is godless. We're godless. Yeah. And now actively we're sinners. A sinner is one who's transgressed the law of God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We already saw that. Okay. 
sinners by choice. Next week, we're going to be looking at the fact that, that we are sinners because we're in Adam, and that's why we sin also. Sinners by nature, sinners by choice. And you can tell that to lost people, and, and most lost people will not dispute you. They, they won't. I found this to be true over the years. You tell a lost man or a woman that they're a sinner, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've sinned, but everybody's a sinner. Okay. And then the qualifications start. At least I'm not as bad as... I'm not pointing at anybody right now. Notice that? Point. <laughs> at least I'm not as bad as, you know, fill in the blank. Or they may say, well, at least I haven't murdered somebody, you know. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure they're telling the truth, you know. They probably haven't murdered anybody. But it's worse than we think. It's worse than lost people think. Just skip down to verse 10. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled. Christ died for the enemies of his father. I can't prove this to be true. But I would suspect at the cross that day, amongst the Roman soldiers, and maybe even the one Roman soldier that we hear about, I said, surely this was the Son of God. It well could be that those enemies that, that plucked out his beard, those enemies that, that used a whip on his back, those enemies that tried to humiliate him in every way, that some of them came to the Savior and will be in heaven. And uh, there will be God's grace that did that. They were enemies, and God takes his enemies and turns them into his sons and daughters, you know. So I can't prove any one of them did that, but I can tell you uh, that I know that God does take his enemies, because I was his enemy, and you were his enemy, Christian friend. And uh, if you're not for him, you're against him, and um, some are very actively against him, like the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus changed into Paul, an enemy of Jesus Christ, humbled and immediately changed. I'm going to give an illustration. I, I, I hesitate to do it because every illustration breaks down. And this one is a horrible one. But I'm going to give it. You know. I don't mean it's a horrible one. That it's a bad It's not the greatest illustration. But yeah. You know, it's in the news every day about the horrible massacre that happened on November 7th. And now, you know, there's horrible consequences that come from something like that. Now, now um, others have died. Many, many others have died. Okay, so this is a terrible thing. I'm not talking politics now. Nothing to do with politics. Let's suppose that you were an Israeli that was in the place that was attacked and the Palestinians killed your wife. There's a lot of people that had that happen to them. The wives of the children. Okay, so that, that's where you find yourself. You're in that uh, state. Your wife is now gone. She was killed. But you are a survivor. And, of course, now you become part of the, of the army that's going to go into Gaza. And so you do. Hypothetical. 
but you've taken up the war. You're going to fight Hamas. And suddenly, in, in one of those underground tunnels, you and the person that killed your wife come face to face. And you've got a gun in your hand, and he has nothing. And he's standing there, knowing what's going to happen next to him. You know? But all of a sudden, um, a grenade is thrown in, in between you. And you jump on the grenade and save his life. Well, nobody would do that. <laughs> I doubt anybody would do that. You know? But he's my enemy. He killed my wife. And he would gladly kill me if our roles were reversed. True? That's true. And the terrorist would certainly not deserve to have his life spared. That's extreme. It's not exactly the same thing. But we need to realize that Christ died for his enemies. You know? Uh, so, sinner friend, you, you haven't sinned against a country. And you haven't sinned against an innocent woman. And, um, you, you know, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin is against God himself. The Holy One, the creator of all things, including you. And so even though it's an extreme example and really breaks down pretty fast, it's amazing to think that Christ would die for the weak and helpless, that he died for the godless, that he died for sinners, he died for those who had broken his laws, he died for his enemies. And it would be amazing to save the life of an enemy. But God does more than that. He makes us his sons and daughters by adoption. Takes his enemies and turns them into his people. We're in Christ. And he loves us. Well, he died to reconcile us to God. Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, now uh, let me turn my attention to Christians now for a moment, those whom Christ died to save. The wrath of God does not abide on us because we're justified by his blood. We've been saved from the wrath of God by the sacrifice of his son. There was an in-house debate a number of years ago. I don't know if it still rages, but it raged there for a while. And um, the, the question was asked, are we saved by the death of Christ or by the blood of Christ? Sometimes questions aren't asked the right way. Are we saved by the death of Christ or by the blood of Christ? We're saved by the bloody death of Christ. That's the truth of the matter. We're saved by the bloody death of Christ. We need both. The blood is necessary for sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices were bloody. They were ugly. They weren't pretty to look at. Really, Christ on the cross is not pretty to look at. You know, Isaiah 53 tells us that. You know, it's bloody, it's ugly, and there has to be a death, too. There has to be a death. You know. He had to shed his blood, as was pictured in those Old Testament sacrifices, so he could be our sacrifice. And he also had to die in our place, because sin demands death. 
He had to endure the wrath of God that you and I deserved, Christian friend. And he had to rise again to life so that we could live. Okay. And he did it. And he did it all willingly. And it's the reason he came, to reconcile us to God. So verses 10 and 11. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. What does reconciliation mean? Well, it means there's no longer any warfare between ourselves and God. We battled, he won, and now I'm eternally saved. God conquers your soul by his gentle wooing. He conquers your free will and makes you willing to come to him. God reconciles to himself by the death of his son. And having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, that's an interesting thing there. What does that mean? Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Well, I think what we're talking about is by that union we have with him because we are in Christ. Matthew Henry put it this way. It's not to be understood by his life in the flesh, but in his life in heaven after his death. And Charles Hodge, another great theologian, put it this way. The same Savior who died for them still lives and ever lives to sanctify, protect, and save them. So we're talking about Christ as our intercessor. Christ is our great high priest. Christ is in heaven on our behalf. And Christian friend, let me tell you what reconciliation means. Let me tell you what justification means because this is very, very important. Our salvation is absolutely guaranteed. We'll never fall under the wrath of God. We cannot fall under the wrath of God because Jesus Christ bore God's wrath for you, Christian friend, and he bore God's wrath for me. All that Christ did for us to reconcile us to God when we were enemies, vile and godless, should encourage us. You know, we should be very, very glad of that. Very, very glad of that. Because if, if we could lose ourselves, if I could lose my salvation, it's gone. <laughs> I can tell you that. It's just gone. If I can lose it, because I can't keep it. But I'll tell you, something that, uh, I quote him again, he's my favorite personal theologian that I knew, John Watson. There's his name again. You know, he, he liked to say one word over and over again. I wonder if anybody remembers what that word is. Yeah. You go visit him, it was going to come up. It was going to come, it always came up. Kept. K-E-P-T. He'd find some way in the conversation to say kept. And that one little word, he was saying, it's impossible to lose your salvation. You've been justified. You can't be unjustified. I never heard him say that, but that's what he meant. You know, you've been saved from God's wrath. You can't fall under his wrath again. So, well, I know people that profess to be Christians, and uh, now they're, they're living in 
tremendous sin and have no thoughts of God or care for him at all. Or maybe they're not living in tremendous sin, but they just don't care about God at all. And they were never justified. A person can say they're justified and not be justified. A person can say they're a Christian and not be a Christian. That's the truth of the matter. He came to us when we were in that wretched condition and reconciled us to God. So why would he give up on us now? Yeah. After all, why would he give up on us now? You know? We're at peace with God. Do we still sin? Absolutely. Do we need to repent when we sin? Absolutely. Do we fall into God's displeasure and lose the smile of his countenance or face? Well, I just read that to you in our confession that that can happen. You know, it can happen. And it will happen. But, you know, God through the Holy Spirit, the tri third person of the Trinity, always brings us back. Always brings us back. Never that we were lost, no, but brings us back to ourselves from our insanity, because sin is insanity. Verse 11, and not only that, well, we just talked about the fact that you can never lose it. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. Wow, I think I read that somewhere else. Uh, yeah, verse 2. <laughs> verse 2, there, there it was, you know. And so let me just read verses 1 through 5 again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've received, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Amen. These things belong to us because of verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the godless. Well, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you are an enemy of God. You say, well, I don't feel like an enemy. You are, you know, but there's hope for you because that's who God saves. God saves his enemies and uh, saves them through Jesus Christ. God saves sinners. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word which does not work independently, but your word works with the Spirit. The Spirit will use the word, and the word will be used by the Spirit to draw sinners to Christ. That's why we use the word of God. We believe in the word of God. We believe in the power of the word of God. We believe in salvation that comes through understanding of who we are, who Christ is, our fallen state, and the only remedy for that fallen state. 
And it sounds so easy. Sounds so easy to believe. You know, some have even talked about easy believism. It's easy to believe. Lord, it's not easy to believe. In reality, it's impossible to believe unless you do the first work, that great work of justification, that great work, Father, of, of reconciliation. When you do that first work, yeah, it is easy to believe then, Father, because of your spirit being infused into us, Father. We are imputed righteous, Father, because of the imputation given to us by, by your, the work of your Son. His life is death. This is true. It's imputed to us. We didn't do it. We didn't merit it. But it's counted as ours. We thank you for that. But Lord, we thank you for your Spirit, who doesn't leave us alone, just to, quote-unquote, make a decision of sorts, but instead comes into us and guides us through the Christian life, makes us to be different than we ever were. And instead of being your enemies, we now, Father, are sons and daughters of God and will be for all eternity in Christ. We thank you for the work that you alone can do. May Jesus Christ be praised in his name. Amen.